What does Poirot mean when he says that there isn't just one crime, but two? Agatha Christie, today on the Classic Tales podcast. Jolly old Saint Nicholas, lean your ear this way. Don't you tell a single soul what I'm going to say. Welcome to the Classic Tales podcast. Thank you for listening. The Classic Tales podcast is listener-supported. If you enjoy listening to the Classic Tales, please become a supporting member. It helps support the podcast, and it's a great way to build out your library of classics. By making a monthly donation of just $5, you'll receive a corresponding thank you code for an $8 discount off any audiobook order. Donate $10 a month or more, and you get a $17 discount. You win! And we get to keep going strong. Go now to classictalesaudiobooks.com and become a member today. We'd like to thank Spotify for being a partnering sponsor. App users can find a special Christmas bonus in their special features for this week's episode. As I mentioned last week, I am working on an initiative to make the Classic Tales audiobooks free for public schools. A big thank you to everyone who has visited the website, purchased audiobooks, or recommended or reviewed us. It goes a long way. Anything you can do to help us to grow and sustain ourselves will help us put the classics into the ears of the next generation. Thank you. Now for our personal moment. It's Christmas this week, and a fun tradition we have is just about every year we've been able to go to see the Nutcracker in Salt Lake City on New Year's Eve. And uh, we don't get good seats, but we just love to see it. We go early and stop at Siegfried's German Delicatessen, just a couple doors down from the uh, Capitol Theater. And we have a fun, quick snack, maybe buy a few chocolates and treats, and then we sneak them into the show. It's a lot of fun and something we look forward to every year. I hope everyone has a Merry Christmas and a Happy Holidays. That's our personal moment. And now, The Murder on the Links, Part 6 of 7, by Agatha Christie. Blue and red, yes, now I think I'll leave to you What to give the rest Choose for me, dear Santa Claus You will know the best Oh yes, you will Chapter 21. Hercule Poirot on the Case In a measured voice, Poirot began his exposition. It seems strange to you, mon ami, that a man should plan his own death. So strange that you prefer to reject the truth as fantastic and to revert to a story that is in reality ten times more impossible. Yes, Monsieur Renaud planned his own death. But there is one detail that perhaps escapes you. He did not intend to die. I shook my head, bewildered. But no, it is almost simple, really, said Poirot kindly. For the crime that Monsieur Renaud proposed, a murderer was not necessary, as I told you. But a body was. Let us reconstruct, seeing events this time from a different angle. Georges Corneau flies from justice to Canada. 
There, under an assumed name, he marries and finally acquires a vast fortune in South America. But there is a nostalgia upon him for his own country. Twenty years have elapsed. He is considerably changed in appearance. Besides being a man of such eminence that no one is likely to connect him with a fugitive from justice many years ago, he deems it quite safe to return. He takes up his headquarters in England, but intends to spend the summers in France. And ill fortune, that obscure justice which shapes men's ends and will not allow them to evade the consequences of their acts, takes him to Merlonville. There, in the whole of France, is the one person who is capable of recognizing him. It is, of course, a gold mine to Madame Dubray, and a gold mine of which she is not slow to take advantage. He is helpless, absolutely in her power, and she bleeds him heavily. And then the inevitable happens. Jacques Renaud falls in love with the beautiful girl he sees almost daily and wishes to marry her. That rouses his father. At all costs, he will prevent his son marrying the daughter of this evil woman. Jacques Renaud knows nothing of his father's past, but Madame Renaud knows everything. She is a woman of great force of character and passionately devoted to her husband. They take counsel together. Renaud sees only one way of escape. Death. He must appear to die. In reality, escaping to another country, where he will start again under an assumed name, and where Madame Renaud, having played the widow's part for a while, can join him. It is essential that she should have control of the money, so he alters his will. How they meant to manage the body business originally, I do not know. Possibly an art student's skeleton, and a fire or something of the kind. But long before their plans have matured, an event occurs which plays into their hands. A rough tramp, violent and abusive, finds his way into the garden. There is a struggle. Monsieur Renaud seeks to eject him, and suddenly the tramp, an epileptic, falls down in a fit. He is dead. Monsieur Renaud calls his wife. Together, they drag him into the shed. As we know, the event had occurred just outside, and they realize the marvelous opportunity that has been vouchsafed them. The man bears no resemblance to Monsieur Renaud, but he is middle-aged, of a usual French type. That is sufficient. I rather fancy that they sat on the bench up there, out of earshot from the house, discussing matters. Their plan was quickly made. The identification must rest solely on Madame Renaud's evidence. Jacques Renaud and the chauffeur, who had been with his master two years, must be got out of the way. It was unlikely that the French women servants would go near the body, and in any case Renaud intended to take measures to deceive anyone not likely to appreciate details. Masters was sent off, a telegram dispatched to Jacques, Buenos Aires being selected to give credence to the story that Renault had decided upon. Having heard of me, as a rather obscure elderly detective, he wrote his appeal for help, knowing that, when I arrived, 
the production of the letter would have a profound effect upon the examining magistrate, which, of course, it did. They dressed the body of the tramp in a suit of Monsieur Renault's and left his ragged coat and trousers by the door of the shed, not daring to take them into the house. And then, to give credence to the tale Madame Renault was to tell, they drove the aeroplane dagger through his heart. That night, Monsieur Renault will first bind and gag his wife, and then, taking a spade, will dig a grave in that particular spot of ground where he knows a, uh, how do you call it, bonquer is to be made. It is essential that the body should be found. Madame Dubray must have no suspicions. On the other hand, if a little time elapses, any dangers as to identity will be greatly lessened. Then, Monsieur Renault will don the tramp's rags and shuffle off to the station, where he will leave unnoticed by the 1210 train. Since the crime will be supposed to have taken place two hours later, no suspicion can possibly attach to him. You see now his annoyance at the inopportune visit of the girl Bella. Every moment of delay is fatal to his plans. He gets rid of her as soon as he can, however. Then to work. He leaves the front door slightly ajar to create the impression that the assassins left that way. He binds and gags Madame Renault, correcting his mistake of twenty-two years ago, when the looseness of the bonds caused suspicion to fall upon his accomplice, but leaving her primed with essentially the same story as he had invented before, proving the unconscious recoil of the mind against originality. The night is chilly, and he slips on an overcoat over his underclothing, intending to cast it into the grave with the dead man. He goes out by the window, smoothing over the flower-bed carefully, and thereby furnishing the most positive evidence against himself. He goes out onto the lonely golf links, and he digs. And then, yes? And then, said Poirot gravely, the justice that he has so long eluded overtakes him. An unknown hand stabs him in the back. Now, Hastings, you understand what I mean when I talk of two crimes. The first crime, the crime that Monsieur Renault, in his arrogance, asked us to investigate. Ah, but he made a famous mistake there. He misjudged Hercule Poirot. Is solved. But behind it lies a deeper riddle. And to solve that will be difficult, since the criminal, in his wisdom, has been content to avail himself of the devices prepared by Monsieur Renault. It has been a particularly perplexing and baffling mystery to solve. A young hand, like Giraud, who does not place any reliance on the psychology, is almost certain to fail. "'You're marvellous, Poirot,' I said with admiration. "'Absolutely marvellous. No one on earth but you could have done it.' I think my praise pleased him. For once in his life he looked almost embarrassed. "'Ah!' Then you no longer despise poor old Papa Poirot? You shift your allegiance back from the human foxhound? His term for Giraud never failed to make me smile. Rather, you scored over him handsomely. That poor Giraud, said Poirot, trying unsuccessfully to look modest. Without doubt it is not all stupidity. 
He has had la mauvaise chance once or twice. That dark hair coiled round the dagger, for instance. To say the least, it was misleading. To tell you the truth, Poirot, I said slowly, even now I don't quite see whose hair was it. Madame Renault's, of course. That is where la mauvaise chance came in. Her hair, dark originally, is almost completely silvered. It might just as easily have been a grey hair. And then, by no conceivable effort could Giraud have persuaded himself, it came from the head of Jacques Renault. But it is all of a piece. Always the facts must be twisted to fit the theory. Did not Giraud find the traces of two persons, a man and a woman, in the shed? And how does that fit in with his reconstruction of the case? I will tell you, it does not fit in. And so we shall hear no more of them. I ask you, is that a methodical way of working? The great Giraud, the great Giraud is nothing but a toy balloon, swollen with his own importance. But I, Hercule Poirot, whom he despises, will be the little pin that pricks the big balloon. Comme ça. And he made an expressive gesture. Then, calming down, he resumed. Without doubt, when Madame Renault recovers, she will speak. The possibility of her son being accused of the murder never occurred to her. How should it? When she believed him safely at sea on board the Anzora. Ah, voilà une femme, Hastings. What force, what self-command! She made only one slip. On his unexpected return... It does not matter now. And no one noticed. No one realized the significance of those words. What a terrible part she has had to play, poor woman. Imagine the shock when she goes to identify the body, and instead of what she expects, sees the actual lifeless form of the husband she has believed miles away by now. No wonder she fainted. But since then... Despite her grief and her despair, how resolutely she has played her part, and how the anguish of it must wring her. She cannot say a word to set us on the track of the real murderers. For her son's sake, no one must know that Paul Renault was Georges Connor, the criminal. Final and most bitter blow, she has admitted publicly that Madame de Bray was her husband's mistress for a hint of blackmail might be fatal to her secret. How cleverly she dealt with the examining magistrate when he asked her if there was any mystery in her husband's past life. Nothing so romantic, I am sure, Monsieur le Juge. It was perfect. The indulgent tone, the soupçon of sad mockery. At once Monsieur Rotet felt himself foolish and melodramatic. Yes. She is a great woman. If she loved a criminal, she loved him royally. Poirot lost himself in contemplation. One more thing, Poirot. What about the piece of lead piping? You do not see? To disfigure the victim's face so that it would be unrecognizable. It was that which first set me on the right track. And that imbecile of a Giraud, swarming all over the place for match-ends, did I not tell you that a clue of two feet long is quite as good as a clue of two inches? Well, Giraud will sing small now, I observed hastily, to lead the conversation away from my own shortcomings. As I said before, 
will he? If he has arrived at the right person by the wrong method, he will not permit that to worry him. But surely, I paused as I saw the new trend of things. You see, Hastings, we must now start again. Who killed Monsieur Renault? Someone who was near the villa just before twelve o'clock that night. Someone who would benefit from his death. The description fits Jacques Renault only too well. The crime need not have been premeditated. And then the dagger. I started. I had not realized that point. Of course, I said. The second dagger we found in the tramp was Mrs. Renault's. There were two, then. Certainly. And since they were duplicates, it stands to reason that Jacques Renault was the owner. But that would not trouble me so much. In fact, I have a little idea as to that. No, the worst indictment against him is again psychological. Heredity, mon ami. Heredity. Like father, like son. Jacques Renault, when all is said or done, is the son of Georges Connell. His tone was grave and earnest, and I was impressed in spite of myself. What is your little idea that you mentioned just now? I asked. For answer, Poirot consulted his turnip-faced watch, and then asked, What time is the afternoon boat from Calais? About five, I believe. That will do very well. We shall just have time. You are going to England? Yes, my friend. Why? To find a possible witness. Who? With a rather peculiar smile upon his face, Poirot replied, Miss Bella Duvin. But how will you find her? What do you know about her? I know nothing about her, but I can guess a good deal. We may take it for granted that her name is Bella Duvin, and since that name was faintly familiar to Monsieur Stoner, though evidently not in connection with the Renault family, it is probable that she is on the stage. Jacques Renault was a young man with plenty of money, and twenty years of age. The stage is sure to have been the home of his first love. It tallies, too, with Monsieur Renault's attempt to placate her with a cheque. I think I shall find her all right, especially with the help of this. And he brought out the photograph I had seen him take from Jack Renault's drawer. With love from Bella was scrawled across the corner. But it was not that which held my eyes fascinated. The likeness was not first-rate, but for all that it was unmistakable to me. I felt a cold sinking, as though some unutterable calamity had befallen me. It was the face of Cinderella. Chapter 22 I Find Love For a moment or two I sat, as though frozen, the photograph still in my hand, then, summoning all my courage to appear unmoved, I handed it back. At the same time, I stole a quick glance at Poirot. Had he noticed anything? But to my relief, he did not seem to be observing me. Anything unusual in my manner had certainly escaped him. He rose briskly to his feet. We have no time to lose. We must make our departure with all dispatch. All is well. The sea it will be calm. In the bustle of departure... I had no time for thinking, but once on board the boat, secure from Poirot's observation, 
he, as usual, was practicing the method most excellent of Lavergier, I pulled myself together and attacked the facts dispassionately. How much did Poirot know? Was he aware that my acquaintance of the train and Bella Duvine were one and the same? Why had he gone to the Hôtel du Fer? On my behalf, as I had believed? Or had I only fatuously thought so? And was this visit undertaken with a deeper and more sinister purpose? But in any case, why was he bent on finding this girl? Did he suspect her of having seen Jack Renault commit the crime? Or did he suspect... But that was impossible. The girl had no grudge against the elder Renault, no possible motive for wishing his death. What had brought her back to the scene of the murder? I went over the facts carefully. She must have left the train at Calais where I parted from her that day. No wonder I had been unable to find her on the boat. If she had dined in Calais, and then taken a train out to Merlonville, she would have arrived at the Villa Genevieve just about the time that Francoise said. What had she done when she left the house just after ten? Presumably either gone to an hotel, or returned to Calais, and then? The crime had been committed on Tuesday night. On Thursday morning, she was once more in Merlonville. Had she ever left France at all? I doubted it very much. What kept her there? The hope of seeing Jack Renault? I had told her, as at the time we believed, that he was on the high seas en route to Buenos Aires. Possibly she was aware that the Anzora had not sailed. But to know that, she must have seen Jack. Was that what Poirot was after? Had Jack Renault, returning to see Marta Dubray, come face to face instead with Bella Duvine, the girl he had heartlessly thrown over? I began to see daylight. If that were indeed the case, it might furnish Jack with the alibi he needed. Yet under those circumstances, his silence seemed difficult to explain. Why could he not have spoken out boldly? Did he fear for this former entanglement of his to come to the ears of Marta Dubray? I shook my head, dissatisfied. The thing had been harmless enough, a foolish boy and girl affair, and I reflected cynically that the son of a millionaire was not likely to be thrown over by a penniless French girl, who moreover loved him devotedly, without a much graver cause. Altogether I found the affair puzzling and unsatisfactory. I disliked intensely being associated with Poirot in hunting this girl down, but I could not see any way of avoiding it without revealing everything to him, and this, for some reason, I was loath to do. Poirot reappeared brisk and smiling at Dover, and our journey to London was uneventful. It was past nine o'clock when we arrived, and I supposed that we should return straight away to our rooms and do nothing till the morning, but Poirot had other plans. "'We must lose no time, mon ami,' The news of the arrest will not be in the English papers until the day after tomorrow, but still we must lose no time. I did not quite follow his reasoning, but I merely asked how he proposed to find the girl. You remember Joseph Arons, the theatrical agent, no? I assisted him in a little matter of a Japanese wrestler. A pretty little problem, I must recount it to you one day. 
he, without doubt, will be able to put us on the way of finding out what we want to know. It took us some time to run Mr. Aarons to earth, and it was after midnight when we finally managed it. He greeted Poirot with every evidence of warmth, and professed himself ready to be of service to us in any way. "'There's not much about the profession I don't know,' he said, beaming genially. "'Eh bien, Monsieur Aarons, I desire to find a young girl called Bella Duvine.' "'Bella Duvine. I know the name, but for the moment I can't place it. What's her line?' "'That I do not know, but here is her photograph.' Mr. Aarons studied it for a moment, then his face lighted. "'Got it!' he slapped his thigh. "'The Dulcibella kids, by the Lord!' "'The Dulcibella kids? That's it. They're sisters, acrobats, dancers, and singers. Give quite a good little turn. They're in the provinces somewhere, I believe, if they are not resting. They've been on in Paris for the last two or three weeks. Can you find out for me exactly where they are? Easy as a bird.' "'You go home, and I'll send you round the dope in the morning.' "'With this promise we took leave of him. "'He was as good as his word. "'About eleven o'clock the following day, "'a scribbled note reached us. "'The Dulcibella sisters are on at the palace in Coventry. "'Good luck to you.' "'Without more ado, we started for Coventry. "'Poirot made no inquiries at the theatre but contented himself with booking stalls for the variety performance that evening. The show was wearisome beyond words, or perhaps it was only my mood that made it seem so. Japanese families balanced themselves precariously. Would-be fashionable men, in greenish evening dress and exquisitely slicked hair, reeled off society patter and danced marvellously. Stout prima donnas sang at the top of the human register— a comic comedian endeavoured to be Mr. George Roby, and failed signally. At last the number went up, which announced the Dulcibella kids. My heart beat sickeningly. There she was. There they both were, the pair of them, one flaxen-haired, one dark, matching as to size, with short, fluffy skirts and immense buster-brown bows. They looked a pair of extremely piquant children. They began to sing— their voices were fresh and true, rather thin and music-holly, but attractive. It was quite a pretty little turn. They danced neatly, and did some clever little acrobatic feats. The words of their songs were crisp and catchy. When the curtain fell, there was a full meed of applause. Evidently the Dulcibella kids were a success. Suddenly I felt I could remain no longer. I must get out into the air. I suggested leaving to Poirot. "'Go by all means, mon ami. I amuse myself, and will stay to the end. I will rejoin you later.' It was only a few steps from the theatre to the hotel. I went up to the sitting-room, ordered a whisky and soda, and sat, drinking it, staring meditatively into the empty grate. I heard the door open, and turned my head, thinking it was Poirot. Then I jumped to my feet. It was Cinderella who stood in the doorway.' She spoke haltingly, her breath coming in little gasps. I saw you in front, you and your friend. When you got up to go, I was waiting outside and followed you. Why are you here, in Coventry? What were you doing there tonight? Is the man who is with you the, the detective? She stood there, 
the cloak she had wrapped round her stage dress, slipping from her shoulders. I saw the whiteness of her cheeks under the rouge, and heard the terror in her voice. And in that moment, I understood everything. Understood why Poirot was seeking her, and what she feared, and understood at last my own heart. Yes, I said gently. Is he looking for me? She half whispered. Then, as I did not answer for a moment, she slipped down by the big chair and burst into violent, bitter weeping. I knelt down by her, holding her in my arms and smoothing the hair back from her face. Don't cry, child. Don't cry, for God's sake. You're safe here. I'll take care of you. Don't cry, darling. Don't cry. I know. I know everything. Oh, but you don't. I think I do. And after a moment as her sobs grew quieter, I asked, It was you who took the dagger, wasn't it? Yes. That was why you wanted me to show you round, and why you pretended to faint. Again, she nodded. It was a strange thought to come to me at the moment, but it shot into my mind that I was glad her motive was what it had been, rather than the idle and morbid curiosity I had accused her of at the time. How gallantly she had played her part that day, inwardly racked with fear and trepidation as she must have been. Poor little soul, bearing the burden of a moment's impetuous action. Why did you take the dagger? I asked presently. She replied as simply as a child. I was afraid there might be finger marks on it. But didn't you remember that you had worn gloves? She shook her head as though bewildered, and then said slowly, Are you going to give me up to... to the police? Good God, no! Her eyes sought mine long and earnestly and then she asked, in a little quiet voice that sounded afraid of itself, Why not? It seemed a strange place and a strange time for a declaration of love, and God knows, in all my imagining, I had never pictured love coming to me in such a guise, but I answered simply and naturally enough, Because I love you, Cinderella. She bent her head down, as though ashamed, and muttered in a broken voice, You can't. You can't. Not if you knew. And then, as though rallying herself, she faced me squarely and asked, What do you know, then? I know that you came to see Mr. Renault that night. He offered you a check, and you tore it up indignantly. Then you left the house. I paused. Go on. What next? I don't know whether you knew that Jack Renault would be coming that night, or whether you just waited about on the chance of seeing him, but you did wait about. Perhaps you were just miserable and walked aimlessly. But at any rate, just before twelve, you were still near there, and you saw a man on the golf links. Again I paused. I had leapt to the truth in a flash as she entered the room, but now the picture rose before me even more convincingly. 
I saw vividly the peculiar pattern of the overcoat on the dead body of Mr. Renault, and I remembered the amazing likeness that had startled me into believing for one instant that the dead man had risen from the dead when his son burst into our conclave in the salon. Go on, repeated the girl steadily. I fancy his back was to you, but you recognized him, or thought you recognized him. The gait and the carriage were familiar to you, and the pattern of his overcoat. I paused. You told me in the train on the way from Paris that you had Italian blood in your veins, and that you had nearly got into trouble once with it. You used a threat in one of your letters to Jack Renault. When you saw him there, your anger and jealousy drove you mad, and you struck. I don't believe for a minute that you meant to kill him. But you did kill him, Cinderella. She had flung up her hands to cover her face, and in a choked voice she said, You're right. You're right. I can see it all as you tell it. Then she turned on me almost savagely. And you love me? Knowing what you do, how can you love me? I don't know, I said a little wearily. I think love is like that. A thing one cannot help. I have tried, I know, ever since the first day I met you. And love has been too strong for me. And then suddenly, when I least expected it, she broke down again, casting herself down on the floor and sobbing wildly. Oh, I can't, she cried. I don't know what to do. I don't know which way to turn. Oh, pity me. Pity me, someone, and tell me what to do. Again I knelt by her, soothing her as best I could. Don't be afraid of me, Bella. For God's sake, don't be afraid of me. I love you, that's true, but I don't want anything in return. Only let me help you. Love him still if you have to, but let me help you as he can't. It was as though she had been turned to stone by my words. She raised her head from her hands and stared at me. You think that? she whispered. You think that I love Jack Renault? Then half laughing, half crying, she flung her arms passionately round my neck and pressed her sweet wet face to mine. Not as I love you, she whispered. Never as I love you. Her lips brushed my cheek, and then seeking my mouth, kissed me again and again with a sweetness and fire beyond belief. The wildness of it, and the wonder I shall never forget. No, not as long as I live. It was a sound in the doorway that made us look up. Poirot was standing there looking at us. I did not hesitate. With a bound I reached him and pinioned his arms to his sides. Quick, I said to the girl, get out of here as fast as you can, I'll hold him. With one look at me, she fled out of the room past us. I held Poirot in a grip of iron. Mon ami, observed the latter mildly, you do this sort of thing very well. The strong man holds me in his grasp, and I am helpless as a child. But all this is uncomfortable and slightly ridiculous. Let us sit down and be calm. You won't pursue her? Mon Dieu, no. Am I Giraud? Release me, my friend. Keeping a suspicious eye upon him, 
for I paid Poirot the compliment of knowing that I was no match for him in astuteness, I relaxed my grip, and he sank into an armchair, feeling his arms tenderly. "'It is that you have the strength of a bull when you are roused, Hastings. Eh bien. And do you think you have behaved well to your old friend? I show you the girl's photograph, and you recognize it, but you never say a word.' There was no need if you knew that I recognized it, I said rather bitterly. So Poirot had known all along. I had not deceived him for an instant. Ta-ta! You did not know that I knew that. And tonight you helped the girl to escape when we have found her with so much trouble? Eh bien, it comes to this. Are you going to work with me or against me, Hastings? For a moment or two I did not answer. To break with my old friend gave me great pain. Yet I must definitely range myself against him. Would he ever forgive me, I wondered? He had been strangely calm so far, but I knew him to possess marvellous self-command. Poirot, I said. I'm sorry. I admit I've behaved badly to you over this. But sometimes one has no choice. And in future I must take my own line. Poirot nodded his head several times. "'I understand,' he said. The mocking light had quite died out of his eyes, and he spoke with a sincerity and kindness that surprised me. "'It is that, my friend, is it not? It is love that has come, not as you imagined it, all cock-a-hoop with fine feathers, but, sadly, with bleeding feet.' Well, well, I warned you. When I realized that this girl must have taken the dagger, I warned you. Perhaps you remember. But already it was too late. But tell me, how much do you know? I met his eyes squarely. Nothing you could tell me would be any surprise to me, Poirot. Understand that. But in case you think of resuming your search for Miss Duveen, I should like you to know one thing clearly. If you have any idea that she was concerned in the crime, or was the mysterious lady who called upon Mr. Renault that night, you are wrong. I travelled home from France with her that day, and parted from her at Victoria that evening, so that it is clearly impossible for her to have been in Merlonville. Ah, Poirot looked at me thoughtfully. And you would swear to that in a court of law? Most certainly I would. Poirot rose and bowed. Mon ami, vive l'amour. It can perform miracles. It is decidedly ingenious what you have thought of there. It defeats even Hercule Poirot. Chapter 23 Difficulties Ahead after a moment of stress, such as I have just described, reaction is bound to set in. I retired to rest that night on a note of triumph, but I awoke to realize that I was by no means out of the wood. True, I could see no flaw in the alibi I had so suddenly conceived. I had but to stick to my story, and I failed to see how Bella could be convicted in the face of it. It was not as though there was any old friendship between us that could be raked up, and which might lead them to suspect that I was committing perjury. 
It could be proved that in actual fact I had only seen the girl on three occasions. No, I was still satisfied with my idea. Had not even Poirot admitted that it defeated him? But there I felt the need of treading warily. All very well for my little friend to admit himself momentarily nonplussed. I had far too much respect for his abilities to conceive of him as being content to remain in that position. I had a very humble opinion of my wits when it came to matching them against his. Poirot would not take defeat lying down. Somehow or other, he would endeavour to turn the tables on me, and that in the way and at the moment when I least expected it. We met at breakfast the following morning as though nothing had happened. Poirot's good temper was imperturbable, yet I thought I detected a film of reserve in his manner which was new. After breakfast I announced my intention of going out for a stroll. A malicious gleam shot through Poirot's eyes. If it is information you seek, you need not be at the pains of deranging yourself. I can tell you all you wish to know. The Dulcibella sisters have cancelled their contract and have left Coventry for an unknown destination. Is that really so, Poirot? You can take it from me, Hastings. I made inquiries the first thing this morning. After all, what else did you expect? True enough, nothing else could be expected under the circumstances. Cinderella had profited by the slight start I had been able to assure her, and would certainly not lose a moment in removing herself from the reach of the pursuer. It was what I had intended and planned. Nevertheless, I was aware of being plunged into a network of fresh difficulties. I had absolutely no means of communicating with the girl, and it was vital that she should know the line of defence that had occurred to me, and which I was prepared to carry out. Of course, it was possible that she might try to send word to me in some way or another, but I hardly thought it likely. She would know the risk she ran of a message being intercepted by Poirot, thus setting him on her track once more. Clearly, her only course was to disappear utterly for the time being. But in the meantime, what was Poirot doing? I studied him attentively. He was wearing his most innocent air, and staring meditatively into the far distance. He looked altogether too placid and supine to give me reassurance. I had learned with Poirot that the less dangerous he looked, the more dangerous he was. His quiescence alarmed me. Observing a troubled quality in my glance, he smiled benignantly. You are puzzled, Hastings. You ask yourself why I do not launch myself in pursuit. Well, something of the kind. It is what you would do, were you in my place. I understand that. But I am not of those who enjoy rushing up and down the country seeking a needle in a haystack, as you English say. No, let Mademoiselle Bella Duvine go. Without doubt, I shall be able to find her when the time comes. Until then, I am content to wait. I stared at him doubtfully. Was he seeking to mislead me? I had an irritating feeling that even now he was master of the situation. My sense of superiority was gradually waning. I had contrived the girl's escape, and evolved a brilliant scheme for saving her from the consequences of her rash act, but I could not rest easy in my mind. Poirot's perfect calm awakened a thousand apprehensions. I suppose, Poirot, 
I said rather diffidently. I mustn't ask what your plans are. I've forfeited the right. But not at all. There is no secret about them. We return to France without delay. We? Precisely, we. You know very well that you cannot afford to let Papa Poirot out of your sight. Eh? Is it not so, my friend? But remain in England by all means, if you wish. I shook my head. He had hit the nail on the head. I could not afford to let him out of my sight. Although I could not expect his confidence after what had happened, I could still check his actions. The only danger to Bella lay with him. Giraud and the French police were indifferent to her existence. At all costs I must keep near Poirot. Poirot observed me attentively as these reflections passed through my mind, and gave a nod of satisfaction. I am right, am I not? And as you are quite capable of trying to follow me, disguised with some absurdity such as a false beard, which everyone would perceive, bien entendu, I much prefer that we should voyage together. It would annoy me greatly that anyone should mock themselves at you. Very well, then. But it's only fair to warn you. I know. I know all. You are my enemy. Be my enemy, then. It does not worry me at all. So long as it's all fair and above board, I don't mind. You have to the full the English passion for fair play. Now your scruples are satisfied, let us depart immediately. There is no time to be lost. Our stay in England has been short but sufficient. I know what I wanted to know. The tone was light, but I read a veiled menace into the words. Still, I began, and stopped. Still, as you say. Without doubt you are satisfied with the part you are playing. Me, I preoccupy myself with Jacques Renault. Jacques Renault? The words gave me a start. I had completely forgotten that aspect of the case. Jacques Renault in prison, with the shadow of the guillotine looming over him. I saw the part I was playing in a more sinister light. I could save Bella, yes, but in doing so, I ran the risk of sending an innocent man to his death. I pushed the thought from me with horror. It could not be. He would be acquitted. Certainly he would be acquitted. But the cold fear came back. Suppose he were not, what then? Could I have it on my conscience? Horrible thought. Would it come to that in the end? A decision? Bella or Jack Renault? The promptings of my heart were to save the girl I loved at any cost to myself. But if the cost were to another, the problem was altered. What would the girl herself say? I remembered that no word of Jack Renault's arrest had passed my lips. As yet she was in total ignorance of the fact that her former lover was in prison, charged with a hideous crime which he had not committed. When she knew, how would she act? Would she permit her life to be saved at the expense of his? Certainly she must do nothing rash. Jack Renault might and probably would be acquitted without any intervention on her part. If so, good. But if he was not, that was the terrible, the unanswerable problem. I fancied that she ran no risk of the extreme penalty. The circumstances of the crime were quite different in her case. She could plead jealousy and extreme provocation— and her youth and beauty would go for much. 
the fact that by a tragic mistake it was old Mr. Renault and not his son who paid the penalty would not alter the motive of the crime. But in any case, however lenient the sentence of the court, it must mean a long term of imprisonment. No, Bella must be protected. And at the same time, Jack Renault must be saved. How this was to be accomplished, I did not see clearly. But I pinned my faith to Poirot. He knew. Come what might, he would manage to save an innocent man. He must find some pretext other than the real one. It might be difficult, but he would manage it somehow, and with Bella unsuspected and Jack Renault acquitted, all would end satisfactorily. So I told myself repeatedly, but at the bottom of my heart there still remained a cold fear. Chapter 24 Save Him We crossed from England by the evening boat, and the following morning saw us in St. Omer, whither Jack Renault had been taken. Poirot lost no time in visiting Monsieur Rotet. As he did not seem disposed to make any objections to my accompanying him, I bore him company. After various formalities and preliminaries, we were conducted to the examining magistrate's room. He greeted us cordially. I was told that you had returned to England, Monsieur Poirot. I am glad to find that such is not the case. It is true that I was there, Monsieur le Juge, but it was only for a flying visit, a side issue, but one that I fancied might repay investigation. And it did, eh? Poirot shrugged his shoulders. Monsieur Rotet nodded, sighing. We must resign ourselves, I fear. That animal Giraud, his manners are abominable. But he is undoubtedly clever. Not much chance of that one making a mistake. You think not, Monsieur le Juge? It was the examining magistrate's turn to shrug his shoulders. Eh bien, speaking frankly, in confidence, c'est entendu, can you come to any other conclusion? Frankly, Monsieur le Juge, there seem to me to be many points that are obscure. Such as? But Poirot was not to be drawn. I have not yet tabulated them, he remarked. It was a general reflection that I was making. I liked the young man, and should be sorry to believe him guilty of such a hideous crime. By the way, what has he to say for himself on the matter? The magistrate frowned. I cannot understand him. He seems incapable of putting up any sort of defense. It has been most difficult to get him to answer questions. He contents himself with a general denial, and beyond that takes refuge in a most obstinate silence. I am interrogating him again tomorrow. Perhaps you would like to be present? We accepted the invitation with empressement. A distressing case said the magistrate with a sigh. My sympathy for Madame Renaud is profound. How is Madame Renaud? She has not yet recovered consciousness. It is merciful in a way, poor woman. She is being spared much. The doctors say that there is no danger, but that when she comes to herself she must be kept as quiet as possible. It was, I understand, quite as much the shock as the fall which caused her present state.
It would be terrible if her brain became unhinged. But I should not wonder at all. No, really not at all. Monsieur Rotet leaned back, shaking his head, with a sort of mournful enjoyment as he envisaged the gloomy prospect. He roused himself at length and observed with a start, "'That reminds me, I have here a letter for you, Monsieur Poirot. Let me see, where did I put it?' He proceeded to rummage amongst his papers. At last he found the missive and handed it to Poirot. "'It was sent under cover to me in order that I might forward it to you,' he explained. "'But as you left no address, I could not do so.' Poirot studied the letter curiously. It was addressed in a long, sloping, foreign hand, and the writing was decidedly a woman's. Poirot did not open it. Instead, he put it in his pocket and rose to his feet. "'A demain, then, Monsieur le Juge. Many thanks for your courtesy and amiability.' But not at all. I am always at your service. These young detectives of the school of Giraud, they are all alike, rude, sneering fellows. They do not realize that an examining magistrate of my uh, experience is bound to have a certain discernment, a certain flair, enfant. The politeness of the old school is infinitely more to my taste. Therefore, my dear friend... Command me in any way you will. We know a thing or two, you and I, eh? And laughing heartily, enchanted with himself and with us, Monsieur Rotet bade us adieu. I am sorry to have to record that Poirot's first remark to me as we traversed the corridor was, A famous old imbecile, that one, of a stupidity to make pity. We were just leaving the building when we came face to face with Giraud, looking more dandified than ever, and thoroughly pleased with himself. "'Ah, Monsieur Poirot!' he cried airily. "'You have returned from England, then?' "'As you see,' said Poirot. "'The end of the case is not far off now, I fancy.' "'I agree with you, Monsieur Giraud.' Poirot spoke in a subdued tone. His crestfallen manner seemed to delight the other. Of all the milk-and-water criminals, not an idea of defending himself. It is extraordinary. So extraordinary that it gives one to think, does it not? suggested Poirot mildly. But Giraud was not even listening. He twirled his cane amicably. Well, good day, Monsieur Poirot. I am glad you're satisfied of young Renaud's guilt at last. Pardon. "'but I am not in the least satisfied. "'Jacques Renaud is innocent.' "'Giraud stared for a moment, "'then burst out laughing, "'tapping his head significantly "'with the brief remark, "'Toquet!' "'Poirot drew himself up. "'A dangerous light showed in his eyes. "'Monsieur Giraud, "'throughout the case your manner to me "'has been deliberately insulting. "'You need teaching a lesson.' I am prepared to wager you five hundred francs that I find the murderer of Monsieur Renaud before you do. Is it agreed? Giraud stared helplessly at him and murmured again. Toquet. Come now, urged Poirot. Is it agreed? I have no wish to take your money from you. Make your mind easy. You will not. Ah, well, then I agree. You speak of my manner to you being insulting? Eh bien. Once or twice your manner has annoyed me. 
I am enchanted to hear it, said Poirot. Good morning, Monsieur Giraud. Come, Hastings. I said no word as we walked along the street. My heart was heavy. Poirot had displayed his intentions only too plainly. I doubted more than ever my powers of saving Bella from the consequences of her act. This unlucky encounter with Giraud had roused Poirot and put him on his mettle. Suddenly I felt a hand laid on my shoulder and turned to face Gabriel Stoner. We stopped and greeted him, and he proposed strolling with us back to our hotel. "'And what are you doing here, Monsieur Stoner?' inquired Poirot. "'One must stand by one's friends,' replied the other dryly, and "'especially when they are unjustly accused.' "'Then you do not believe that Jacques Renault committed the crime?' I asked eagerly. "'Certainly I don't. I know the lad. I admit that there have been one or two things in this business that have staggered me completely, but nonetheless, in spite of his fool way of taking it, I'll never believe that Jacques Renault is a murderer.' My heart warmed to the secretary. His words seemed to lift a secret weight from my heart. "'I have no doubt that many people feel as you do,' I exclaimed. "'There is really absurdly little evidence against him. I should say that there was no doubt of his acquittal, no doubt whatever.' But Stoner hardly responded as I could have wished. "'I'd give a lot to think as you do,' he said gravely. He turned to Poirot. "'What's your opinion, monsieur?' "'I think that things look very black against him,' said Poirot quietly. "'You believe him guilty?' said Stoner sharply. "'No. But I think he will find it hard to prove his innocence.' "'He's behaving so damned queerly,' muttered Stoner. "'Of course I realize that there's a lot more in this affair than meets the eye. Giraud's not wise to that because he's an outsider, but the whole thing has been damned odd. As to that, least said, soonest mended.' If Mrs. Renault wants to hush anything up, I'll take my cue from her. It's her show, and I have too much respect for her judgment to shove my oar in. But I can't get behind this attitude of Jack's. Anyone would think he wanted to be thought guilty. But it's absurd, I cried, bursting in. For one thing, the dagger. I paused, uncertain as to how much Poirot would wish me to reveal. I continued, choosing my words carefully. We know that the dagger could not have been in Jack Renault's possession that evening. Mrs. Renault knows that. True, said Stoner. When she recovers, she will doubtless say all this and more. Well, I must be leaving you. One moment. Poirot's hand arrested his departure. Can you arrange for a word to be sent to me at once, should Madame Renault recover consciousness? Certainly, that's easily done. That point about the dagger is good, Poirot. I urged as we went upstairs. I couldn't speak very plainly before Stoner. That was quite right of you. We might as well keep the knowledge to ourselves as long as we can. As to the dagger, your point hardly helps, Jacques Renaud. You remember that I was absent for an hour this morning, before we started from London? Yes? Well, I was employed in trying to find the firm Jacques Renaud employed to convert his souvenirs. It was not very difficult. Eh bien, Hastings, they made to his order not two paper knives, but three. So that... So that after giving one to his mother, and one to Bella Duvine, there was a third which he doubtless retained for his own use. No, Hastings, 
I fear the dagger question will not help us to save him from the guillotine. It won't come to that, I cried, stung. Poirot shook his head uncertainly. You will save him, I cried positively. Poirot glanced at me, dryly. Have you not rendered it impossible, mon ami? Some other way, I muttered. Ah, sapristi! But it is miracles you ask from me. No, say no more. Let us instead see what is in this letter. And he drew out the envelope from his breast pocket. His face contracted as he read. Then he handed the one flimsy sheet to me. There are other women in the world who suffer, Hastings. The writing was blurred, and the note had evidently been written in great agitation. Dear Monsieur Poirot, if you get this, I beg of you to come to my aid. I have no one to turn to, and at all costs Jack must be saved. I implore of you on my knees to help us. Martyr to pray. I handed it back, moved. You will go? At once. We will command an auto. Half an hour later saw us at the Villa Marguerite. Marta was at the door to meet us, and led Poirot in, clinging with both hands to one of his. Ah, you have come. It is good of you. I have been in despair, not knowing what to do. They will not let me go to see him in prison, even. I suffer horribly. I am nearly mad. Is it true, what they say, that he does not deny the crime? But that is madness. It is impossible that he should have done it. Never for one minute will I believe it. Neither do I believe it, mademoiselle, said Poirot gently. But then why does he not speak? I do not understand. Perhaps because he is screening someone, suggested Poirot, watching her. Martha frowned. Screening someone? Do you mean his mother? From the beginning I have suspected her. Who inherits all that vast fortune? She does. It is easy to wear widow's weeds and play the hypocrite. And they say that when he was arrested, she fell down like that. And she made a dramatic gesture. And without doubt, Monsieur Stoner, the secretary, he helped her. They are thick as thieves, those two. It is true she is older than he. But what do men care if a woman is rich? There was a hint of bitterness in her tone. Stoner was in England, I put in. He says so. But who knows? Mademoiselle, said Poirot quietly. If we are to work together, you and I, we must have things clear. First, I will ask you a question. Yes, monsieur? Are you aware of your mother's real name? Marta looked at him for a minute. Then, letting her head fall forward on her arms, she burst into tears. There, there said Poirot, patting her on the shoulder. Calm yourself, petite. I see that you know. Now a second question. Did you know who Monsieur Renaud was? Monsieur Renaud? She raised her head from her hands and gazed at him wonderingly. Ah, I see you do not know that. Now listen to me carefully. Step by step, he went over the case much as he had done to me on the day of our departure for England. Martha listened spellbound. When he had finished, she drew a long breath. But you are wonderful, magnificent. You are the greatest detective in the world. 
With a swift gesture she slipped off her chair and knelt before him, with an abandonment that was wholly French. "'Save him, monsieur,' she cried. "'I love him so. Oh, save him! Save him! Save him!' This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you have enjoyed this unabridged production of The Murder on the Links, Part 6 of 7, by Agatha Christie. If you have enjoyed this book, please become a supporting member of the Classic Tales at classictalesaudiobooks.com. You'll find many ways of supporting us, starting at only $5 a month. Each donation comes with a monthly thank you code for expanding your classic audiobook library. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week, and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put Yellow, to paper. blue, and red, yes, now I think I'll leave to you what to give the rest. Choose for me, dear Santa Claus, you will know the best. Oh, yes, you will know.